When God called Abraham out of Babylon and made a promise to him, it was that he would make of him a great nation. God had plans to take one man who was beyond childbearing years and to, through his seed, bring forth a nation through which he would bring the Messiah into the world. And so it would be through the line of Isaac and then Jacob and his 12 sons and then their subsequent sojourning in Egypt that God would begin to build what would become the nation of Israel. And in the process of time, God raised up Moses to be the one who would deliver them and lead them out of Egypt and then into the land that would ultimately become their homeland when they would be that nation. And through Moses, God gave them the law. Not just the Ten Commandments, which would be the moral standard through which they were called to live, but also the constitution of what the nation would ultimately become. 613 laws in different sectors that would make up the standard of who they were and what they were to do and to be. And in giving them the law, God, through Moses, also gave to them an ultimatum. His desire was to put his blessing upon the nation of Israel. But he told the nation that if they wanted to enjoy the fullness of God's blessing, that it would require that they walk in obedience. He said, you've got to keep my words if you expect to abide within my blessing. Then God said, but if you choose not to, then not only will that be your demise, but it will end in your destruction. And the glory that I've ordained your nation to be and the light that I've called it to shine forth into the rest of the world will perish should you choose to decline and to disobey. And so God built that nation. And they came into the promised land. And they saw their height in the days of David and then his son Solomon. And they built the temple and the glory of God fell upon it. And the glory of Israel at their apex exceeded the glory of any other kingdom at any other day for wealth and for influence and for might and for safety and for defense and for produce and for fruitfulness as a country. They were everything that God promised them to be. But after the days of Solomon, the kingdom split. The tribe of Judah, which was the tribe of David, and that would ultimately become the tribe through which Messiah would come, they remained in the south with Jerusalem as their capital. But the northern ten tribes split off and made their capital in Samaria. And through that northern kingdom that is called Israel, as we move through the kings, the root of idolatry and apostasy began within the land. The first king of that northern kingdom, Jeroboam, set up two golden calves, one at Bethel, middle of the land, and one in Dan, way up in the north. And they became a stumbling block to Israel, and they began turning away from the Lord and following the path that Moses told them would ultimately lead to their demise. Well, in our study tonight, 750 years on the other side of that exodus, when Moses led them out from bondage in Egypt, we see and experience through them and through this text the death of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now people often ask the question, 
Is the United States pictured anywhere in Bible prophecy? Does the Bible look forward to the times of our nation being birthed and through our existence? And what part do we play in God's plan even into the last days? And there's really no clear answer to that question of where does the United States fit into prophecy? There's no clear place where you can point and say, this absolutely is the USA. Some have tried. There are some scriptures that maybe indicate or give a clue, but we don't know absolutely for sure. But where the United States is seen the most clearly in scripture is as a reflection of the nation of Israel. In that, we are both, the USA and Israel, nations that have been established by God and that were directed by a constitution that was founded upon the word of God. For Israel, that was literal because Moses gave them literally the word of God as their constitution. For us, it was founded upon the principles of the word of God and being a people of God that are submitted to God and that desire to honor God. And no other nation besides Israel in the history of the world has been founded upon that principle or upon that truth. And thus, when we look at Israel's history from their inception all the way through to their demise, we can trace the footsteps of our nation as well and that we were founded the same way. But the same ultimatum that Israel had, that would they continually depend upon God and walk in obedience to him, that would result in either their success or their failure. So also with the United States of America founded upon godly principles, founded in dependence upon God. But would we, will we, continue in that dependence? And what happens if we don't? And certainly we followed the course of Israel, and thus what we see in tonight's Bible study serves as a warning for us as to where our nation indeed is heading if we continue on the course that we're on, walking away from God. And thus I forewarn you that perhaps tonight's study a little bit heavy as we consider and see the things that they went through. But at the same time that it's heavy, it also brings to me a glimmer of hope. Because God promises that he's going to be faithful to his people. God says that he's going to honor those that honor him. And thus if we place ourselves in a place of dependence and obedience, then we can stand even in dark days that might be ahead for our country as we see what God does and how he deals with those nations. So tonight, two chapters. Chapter 16 deals with Judah in the south, a king by the name of Ahaz. And then chapter 17 deals with Israel and Hoshea, the last king of Israel. And then we see the death of the northern kingdom. And then after this, it gets a whole lot clearer because we aren't bouncing back and forth between the north and the south. After tonight, there is no more North. And so the cast of characters for tonight's Bible study. First of all, we have Ahaz, this new king of Judah, a descendant of David, and the son of Uzziah, and the son of Jotham that we studied last week. Second cast or character in our cast is a, a king by the name of Rezin, R-E-Z-I-N. He is the king of Syria in the days of Ahaz. The third is a king named Pekah. And he is the king of Israel during the reign of Ahaz, the second to last king that they will have. And he'll be in an alliance with Rezin, the king of Syria. The fourth 
a man named Tiglath-Pileser. He is the king of Assyria, a people group and a nation that we haven't really become too acquainted with thus far in our study, but they become the dominant powerhouse of the nations in that day, and they were the dominant empire until they were absorbed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Assyria is present-day Iran, and it was the same people uh, then as that are there now. And so Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, he'll come into the story, and then his successor, Shalmaneser, and then, of course, Hoshea, who's the last king of Israel. Now, at this point in our study of kings, if you were to read the first 10 chapters of Isaiah, then you would be current with the times that we are in. This is the season when the prophet Isaiah is brought onto the scene. And as you read the first 10 chapters, what you catch is a glimpse of what God saw and what was going on in the soul of the nation and the people at this time. And some of the events that we'll look at in our text tonight are addressed in that chapter, and we'll reference some of those as we go through. Also, you could read the prophet Amos, one of the minor prophets, uh, Amos. And Amos really gives, uh, in his prophecy, a clear picture of the conditions of the culture. And so you get a real intimate view of what was going on in a way that Kings doesn't take the time to develop. And then Micah as well, the prophet Micah, and also the prophet Hosea. And some of you uh, know what the prophet Hosea is all about. And really, Hosea is a reflection of God's heart during this time. How does God feel about the course that the nation is going? And it's a beautiful picture of God's love, God's patience, and God's desire to redeem them and restore them and not to see them destroyed. The Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his wicked ways and live. That's God's heart and God's desire, and it's seen clearly through the prophet Hosea. And so all of those books are are concurrent with this time, God rising up those prophets because of the condition of the nation and God's desire to see them turn back to him. And so chapter 16 Uh, Verse 1 deals with Ahaz, king of Judah. It says, In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. Now, When we come to Ahaz, we're coming off of 68 years of good kings in the southern kingdom. Uzziah, 52 years, he was a good king, and the nation did well under him. God was the center, and God's blessing was on them. Then his son Jotham, 16 years after him, a good king. And now Ahaz comes on the scene, and he does not follow in the footsteps of Jotham or of Uzziah. And so it says in verse 3 that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, yea, and he made his son to pass through the fire. Now that's a reference to the god Molech, the false god who would be heated up and they would literally burn their children to death on the arms of Molech, believing that Molech would somehow put a blessing upon their life or a fruitfulness upon their family should they sacrifice their sons or their daughters to him. And so he did that. He partook uh, of that infanticide uh, that was such an abomination to the heart of God in those days. And so he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children 
of Israel. And he sacrificed and he burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And so everything that he did, that he did in the name of the Lord, it was an affront to God. Now, verse 5, it says, Then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, or wage war, and they besieged Ahaz, but they could not overcome him. Now, when you read in Second Chronicles chapter 28, which is the, uh, the, the, the parallel um, passage that uh, um, gives what was going on in this days, it uses the word wherefore, not um, then. So if you look at verse 5 at the beginning where it says then resin, in Chronicles it says wherefore. In other words, because of Ahaz's apostasy, God raised up this alliance between the king of Syria and the king of Israel to come and wage war and to besiege Jerusalem um, that they might uh, fall. But it says that they could not overcome him. But at that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria and drove the Jews from Elath. And the Syrians came to Elath and dwelt there unto this day. Have you ever heard the phrase um, to have a warning shot blasted across the bow? And the reference is to that you're, you know, you're sailing and you're sailing into dangerous waters or enemy territory. And rather than just sink the ship with the first shot, uh, an enemy you know, vessel or a landmass will fire a warning shot across the bow of that ship close enough to get the attention of those that are on the ship to, to warn them that they need to turn around. And that's exactly what's happening here with this uh, war that is, is waged between Rezin and Pekah. God raises them up because of the idolatry and the apostasy of Ahaz with the desire to turn him around in the right direction. Now, although they did not take Jerusalem at this time, Jerusalem suffered an incredible loss. There was 120 soldiers that were killed, or sorry, 120,000 soldiers that were killed in this battle. There were 200,000 regular citizens that were carried away captive out of Jerusalem into the northern kingdom. And they were let go again because a prophet came and, and warned them and said, you guys are, you know, you're messing with God's people. You better not do that. And you are God's people, so you better listen. And they did. So they let him go. But in this, Ahaz also lost a son. He lost his vice president and he lost his chief of staff. And so the cannonball was flying pretty close to the uh, deck, if you would. And a few people got taken out by it along the way. Now, at that time, God sent the prophet Isaiah to give a warning to um, Ahaz concerning this. And it's in chapter 7. And you could read just the first um, nine verses on your own of chapter 7. And it tells you the warning that Isaiah brought to him. And, and basically what Isaiah said to Ahaz personally, one-on-one, -on -one, is he said, what you need to do right now is that you need to humble yourself before God and you need to put your trust completely in him. And that although this situation looks bad, if you will rest upon God and you'll put your dependence completely on him, then you'll stand even though the problems that are facing you are pretty dire and things look pretty bad for you. You need to trust in the Lord. But he gave him a choice. And he said, if you believe, you'll be established. But if you don't, then you won't. And so we see he took that warning, he took those choices, and notice what he does with it. He takes out an insurance plan. Verse 7. It says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, 
saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house, and he sent it for a present, or as kind of a tax payment, if you would, to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, which was the capital of Syria, and he took it. And he carried the people of it captive to Ker, which was an Assyrian territory, and then he slew Rezin, which was the king of Syria at that time. And so he looks at the circumstances Ahaz does, and he sees, hey, this is pretty bad, and I don't have the resources or the ability to handle this on my own. And so he hires the king of an enemy territory who already has Israel in his crosshairs. And he says, I'll pay you if you'll go and fight my battle for me and you subdue the king of Syria and the king of Israel that have risen up uh, against me uh, in the whole thing. And he does it. He brings um, the, the, his armies up there and, and they go through and they do it. And so he takes out this insurance policy and all he does in this is that he chooses amongst all of his own options, he chooses the option that's going to buy him the most time. And that's really all he is going to gain from this. Because he already knows that the king of Assyria wants to take Israel down. But he figures that if he just pays the guy off for a while, he'll be able to buy himself the time that he needs to either have a miracle take place or to come up with a way to to somehow beat them back. But in the meantime, he's going to have to pay an incredible tax levy in order to uh, try to, to stave off the threats that come from him. Now listen, complex problems bring complex situations that exceed our personal resources. And that's true in every area of life. And so when you have complex problems, you really only have two choices. You can either turn to God, who there is no problem too complex for him, or you can just begin to try things. And oftentimes, the human response in complex situations is just to try things. Well, this thing's way beyond what I can wrap my, my mind or my resources around. So I'm just going to do something to try to, to try to kick the can down the road or figure out a way to try to do this. And the choice that was put before Ahaz is take this to God on the one hand and let him work it out or try things. And he chose to try things. That's what he did. Now, we as a country, we face very complex problems in the day that we live in. When we look at the economic sphere and the things that are facing us as a country economically, when we look at the stage of politics and the complexity and the corruption that exists in the political sphere and the days and times that we live in, when we look at the moral climate of the days that we live in, the only thing that you can come to is that these problems are complex. And that any human solution that you would try to bring to any one of those sectors where there are these problems, none of those things really solve the problem. They might fix it for a while or put a patch on it or a Band-Aid or make it look good, but it doesn't solve the problems that that, that, that we have. There's only one that can solve the problems that we have, and that's God. And the only way that our country is going to see solution to the problems that we have on any one of those scales is when our country wakes up and turns back to God and says, God, we have messed this thing up. Can you fix this? And God says that when a people and when a nation do that, that he's more than willing 
to do what only he can do and to fix it. But that's the only solution that's there. Now, the same thing applies in our own personal lives. We all face personal complex problems, problems with marriage. That's complex. Problems with family or problems with uh, money or problems with extended family or problems with relationships or mental problems, depression, oppression, addictions. We go through all of these things. It's real life, and they're problems that are more complex than what we've been given in our human limitations to deal with. We have two choices. We can either take those things to a God who says, I'm the God of all flesh and nothing is too hard for me. Or we can just throw our own resources at it and just begin to try things to fix the problems that we have. Now, what we do and what we choose to do when we come to those crossroads is going to determine the outcome. If we turn to God, he's more than willing to bring us through. And he says that he's willing and that he will. But if we don't and we say, well, God, that's, you know, the Bible, this is real life, and I don't think that, 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 that you can help me with this, and so I've got to do this the world's way, then where you're ultimately going to end up is in a worse situation than you're in presently, and you won't address the problem or fix the problem at all. And so he's faced with this choice. He takes out the insurance policy, but it backfires on him because the price is too high. And when you read it in Chronicles, you realize that even from the very beginning, after giving the first payment, Tiglath-Pileser makes his way into Jerusalem, and he oppresses Ahaz, the king of Syria. Uh, and, and it does not prosper his plan and his desire. And so the result of that is that Ahaz now completely turns his back on God. He is going to just say, okay, God, you didn't help me with my plan. You didn't bless the money that I gave to the king of Assyria. And so forget you. I'm not following you anymore. And he goes completely apostate. Isn't that just like some, sometimes just like us? God doesn't come through in the thing that we think he should do or handle things in the time frame that we think he should. And so rather than reassess and come back and say, God, where did I go wrong? Or what's the deal? We just turn our back on him. That's what he does. Notice it says in verse um, verse 8, or verse um, 10. It says, And King Ahaz went to Damascus, now to meet Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, and he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah, the priest, the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it, according to all the workmanship thereof. And Urijah the priest built an altar according to all the, that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Urijah the priest made it while King Ahaz came home from Damascus. So he sees this altar there to the gods of the Syrians, and he's impressed by the appearance of it. And Chronicles tells us that not only was he impressed with the appearance of the altar, but that he was also impressed with the success of the Syrians. And the rationale in his mind is that if God's not going to help me and bless my effort and plan and bless me while I'm walking in rebellion to him, then I'm going to give my service to the gods of the Syrians because it seems like they're doing pretty well. And so rather than changing paths so that he can have the blessing of God, he changes gods and it ultimately brings him into his demise. And so they bring this altar and watch what he does with it. It says that when the king was come down from Damascus, the king saw the altar and the king approached to the altar and he offered on it. And he burnt his burnt offering and his meat offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar. 
And he brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord. That's the one that Moses built that was prescribed by God. He moved it from the forefront of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the new altar. And so he takes the altar that he's built and he moves the altar that's been established since the days when Solomon built the temple according to the architecture and the pattern that God had made, that he instituted. The altar that was to be the epicenter, the central focus of the worship, where the worshiper would bring their sacrifice or their lamb that would be the atonement for their sin. And he takes and he removes that from the forefront of what the people would see. And then he places a pagan altar in its place and he offers upon it. And it says that King Ahaz commanded Urijah the priest saying, upon the great altar or the new altar, burn the morning burnt offering and the evening meat offering and the king's burnt sacrifice and his meat offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meat offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice and the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. Now Chronicles gives this commentary uh, on this in, in 2 Chronicles 28 verse 22. It says that in the time of his distress, he did trespass yet more against the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him, and he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria help them, therefore will I sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And so here he changes God's thinking that it's going to bless him or prosper him in some way and turns out to be the demise of him and of Israel that he does this because he does it as an affront to God. Now, the thing that hurts even more is what we see in verse 16. It says, Thus did Urijah the priest according to all that King Ahaz uh, had commanded to him. Urijah listens to the counsel of Ahaz and he does the things that he said. And what we see here is a total breakdown of God's place and, and God's desire for the land. See, they were desired as a people called Israel. Israel means governed by God and God was to be the head. He was to be the, the, the Lord over their land and everything. And the way he ordained it is that he would then speak through the priests and the prophets to whom the king would seek counsel from and then he would administrate the will of God to the people as he would hear from the priests the heart of God. And so the order was God to the priests to the king. And what we see Ahaz now doing is that he's removing God altogether jumping over the priest and making it the king who tells the priest what to do, and now the priest is walking subservient to what the king has to say. That's a sad day for Israel. His grandfather, Uzziah, tried to do that, remember? He said, I'm going to go into the temple and offer my own sacrifice. And a wall of 80 priests stood in front of him and said, no way, you're not going in there. It's not for kings to go in here. And they held the line of their authority and what they were called to do. And Uzziah was smitten with leprosy. He had to tuck his tail and humble himself before God because he tried to bounce out of order. Well, here we see Uriah doing it and none of the priests withstand him at all. 
but rather they give in to him and they obey what he wants to do. Never would have happened in years past. Now, this is a fundamental change in the government of God in Israel. Now, thankfully, there's going to be a revival in Judah. I know I'm ruining next week's study already. But when Hezekiah comes on the scene, he's going to fix this stuff. And it's going to, God's going to have mercy on them. But this is a complete breakdown of what God ordained that country to be. And I can't help when I look at this to, again, consider our country and the course that we've taken. I mean, there is a problem in the country that we live in right now. When the founding fathers of our country constructed the constitution that would govern the land, it was the law of the land. It was the job of the elected officials to defend the freedoms that were put forth in that document. In other words, it wasn't the government that stood as Lord over the people of our nation, but it was the document. It was the constitution that, again, was founded upon the word of God and upon the ways of God that established for man, the citizen, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that was our fundamental right, and it was the job of elected officials to guard those rights, a limited form of government. It was a constitutional republic that was ordained. Now, somewhere over the past, I don't know how many years, it's been replaced or switched out in the mind of the common American. We're no longer a republic, but now we're a democracy. And that's a different thing altogether. See, under a democracy, the document no longer rules. It's no longer the government defending the foundation stone of what our country is supposed to be. But now, a democracy, it means that if a slim majority decides that something should be a certain way, then that's the way it goes. That's what a democracy is. Majority rules. That's not what our government was founded upon. What we're seeing happen before our very eyes in the days that we live in is that the very foundation upon which our country and the blessing of God upon our country and the freedom that comes with our country and what that is, that's being taken out completely and majority rules. Even if it's not really a majority, it's just supposedly a majority. And so the same type of thing that brought Israel down, we're watching it take place even in our days as well. Now the church is doing the same exact thing. Because the altar, again, was to be the central focus for the worshiper. The place where sin was done away. Where blood was shed to make atonement for the sins of men. That was the way that man, that is the way that man is to approach unto God. And by removing that from that place, they were moving the sacrificial offering of blood to atone for sin out of the mind of the people. Thereby pushing true fellowship out of the eyes and the mind of the people. And the same thing is happening in churches all around the world today. People are moving the altar, the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ and the message of salvation that we are fallen and lost in our trespasses and sins. And if it weren't for the grace of God through the provision of Jesus Christ giving himself as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, then none of us have any stance to approach before God. Somehow, out of convenience or out of the desire to be successful or popular, the altar has been put to the side of the room and a feel-good social gospel has risen up to take its place. And No one is called to repent of their sin or to account for their need or to even acknowledge what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross anymore. And thus people sit in churches, but their sins aren't forgiven. They call themselves Christians, but there's no change within their lives. 
There's buildings that are erected, but the culture isn't transformed because the Holy Spirit isn't indwelling people. It's because the altar has been moved aside and we see Israel doing it in these days when they're in this tailspin and this uh, downfall. And so Uriah did according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases and he removed the laver from off of them and he took down the sea from off the brazen oxen that were under it and he put it upon a pavement of stones. And the covert for the Sabbath, this uh, canopy for the Sabbath that we don't even know what that is, but it says that they had built it in the house and the king's entry without, he turned from the house of the Lord for the king of Syria. So he takes all of the things that Solomon had built by the design of God through David, and now he just tears all that apart. He ruins the brazen all the, the brazen labor. He just takes takes everything out, and he gives the wealth of those things to uh, now the king of Syria. Although Chronicles um, sort of indicates that maybe he did it to hide the wealth of those things from the king of Syria, Assyria because uh, of the high uh, tax requirement that he had placed upon Ahaz. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his stead, which we'll we'll catch him uh, when we get to chapter 18 next week. But now chapter 17, we jump to the northern kingdom of Israel and we watch them die. It says, in the twelfth year of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began Hoshea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel for nine years. Now, he's the last king that, that we'll have to endure in it. And this is the last time that we'll have to hear this about a king of Israel in verse 2. It says that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. So he wasn't quite as bad as Ahab uh, and Omri and, uh, you know, some of the, 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 the more wicked of the kings. And it says that against him came up Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria. So the successor to Tiglath-Pileser. And Hoshea became his servant and gave him presents or paid taxes to him. So the levy that was levied upon Israel in order for them to exist, uh, you know, now he's, he's having to pay it. And this is just common what you would do. I mean, if you, as a, as a, a, a head of state, had another nation in your crosshairs and you wanted to take them out, if they offered to pay you to not do that because they knew that they were, they were overpowered, that they couldn't win, then you would be a fool to say no and just go take them. You would milk them for everything you could. Oh, so in other words, you, you want me to not come in and overthrow you, and in the meantime, you'll give me the wages and the work and the effort and everything that your people are working hard for, you'll give that to me? And then, okay, I'll do that, and then I'll let you collapse under the weight of the broken back of your national spirit, and then I'll just come in and take the land after the fact uh, and, and clean up the spoils uh, after it. Interesting. I mean, nothing like that would ever happen in the world today. I mean, it would never happen that, you know, a, a, a king of a, of a nation, let's say like China, would have a country like, say, the United States and its crosshairs and, and want to take them down. But in the meantime, the United States is falling under the weight of its economic woes and living beyond its means. And its moral compass is shot. And so the United States just says to China, hey, we need a little help, so we'll sell you our treasuries and our bonds. And then what we'll do is we'll, 
ship our factories over to you and you can employ your people in our factories, send us the goods and we'll send, you send the goods, pay your people nothing and then we'll send the money for those goods here, make them so that they only last a couple of years and then we'll do it again. And China says, oh, okay, we'll wait. We'll just sit over here and wait. And we'll let you guys just fall under the weight of your own problems and then we'll just come clean up in the end. Now, that wouldn't happen today because, you know, this is the Bible and this is real life, you know. So these things, you, you understand, this is just history. It doesn't happen like that anymore. But the king of Assyria, verse 4, this is what happens, watch, ultimately, found conspiracy in Hoshea. For he had sent messengers, this is uh, Hoshea, the king of Israel, sent messengers to sow the king of Egypt and brought no present or paid no taxes to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and he besieged it for three years. And in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and he carried Israel away into Assyria and he placed them in Hala and in Habor by the river Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. And so the, the straw that breaks the camel's back for the nation of Israel in this uh, tension that they're experiencing between the Assyrian Empire is that Hoshea sends a message to sow the king of Egypt to try to forge an alliance so that he can resist the oppression that's coming to him from Assyria. Now, in the process of doing that, he gets overconfident and he doesn't pay his taxes. Now, if you want to know if the government is really your friend, just stop paying your taxes and see what happens. That's exactly what happens here. They don't receive their tax payment And then they find out exactly just how friendly the Assyrians actually were with them uh, in the whole thing. But the thing that saddens me in all of this is what it is that Israel did. Because ultimately, it isn't Assyria that's overthrowing Israel. It's God. These are God's people. And how many times have we seen God throughout their history step in and defend them and keep them from being carried away into captivity? But here he doesn't. Why? In fact, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, God calls Assyria his rod. He says, I'm the one that's using Assyria to come through and do this. Why does God do it? Because 750 years before this took place, God, by the hand of Moses, brought his people out of bondage in Egypt. And now they fall into such a place where they're turning back to the place where they've been delivered to seek help to get out of the bondage that they've placed themselves under. That's sad. But how many people do that? God sets them free from something in their life. He sets them free from a life of bondage. And they walk with God for a while and they get mixed up and they don't follow his ways and you see them turn back to the very thing that they've been set free from at some point in their past. It's exactly what Israel does, and it becomes the thing that ultimately brings the northern ten tribes into uh, captivity. And so the death of the nation, as they uh, return to Egypt for help, they're overthrown by the Assyrians, and they're carried away as captives. Now in verse 7, all the way up through verse 23, God is going to list out before them the charges of why. God always does that. He never just does something Um, without knowing exactly what he's doing and without exactly telling the reasons why. But what it translates to be for you and me is really the autopsy. 
The nation is dead. What killed them? It says, for so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had, first of all, feared other gods. God's first indictment against them is that they reverenced or put their hope in or their trust in or they were fearful of the punishment of other gods other than Jehovah God. God says, you've turned away from me in your heart. I've set you free. I showed you my miracles by the hand of Moses. I've provided you for you. I've built you up as a nation. And you have consistently turned your back to fear gods that are not gods. Then in verse 8, it says, and you've walked in the statutes of the Gentiles or the nations whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. And so God's second charge against them is that you've adopted worldly ways in place of my ways. And so they would take the world's way of governing themselves and adjudicating situations. They would take the world's way of reasoning and thinking, the way that they would think through situations. They would never even ask, what does God think about this? They would just resort to the world's ways. They would go to the world's ways of parenting, not even asking God, how do we do this? How do we raise a family? What did you want a family to be when you first invented it? But they would just go right to Dr. Spock and right to, uh, you know, the, 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 the psychology books and to what the conventional wisdom is of the day, just the worldly ways. The the world's ways of relating to people. The world's ways of justifying behavior. He says, God says, you've forsaken my ways and you've turned to the ways of the nations whom the Lord cast out. And then in verse 9, And the children of Israel did secretly those things which were not right against the Lord their God. And they built high places in all their cities from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. God says, my third indictment or thing against you is that you sinned secretly thinking that it had no bearing or effect upon your life or the lives of those that lived around you. People think that if God doesn't, or if people don't see the things that I'm doing, or if the things that I'm doing in secret bear no immediate effect on the people around me within my life, then it doesn't even really matter what I'm doing. God doesn't really care because he only cares if what I'm doing harms someone else. But he doesn't care if, it, if, it, if it, there's no immediate effect. on them. That's not true. Because what if God says, I'm going to cause the things that I see being done in secret to result in completely unrelated things that are going to take place in the world around you? I would encourage you to read Leviticus chapter 26, the conditions that Moses set before the nation. God said this. He said, if you obey me, I'm going to prosper and bless you, and it's not going to make sense. A and B are not going to make sense to see. People are going to see what you're doing, and they're going to see that the blessing is exponentially beyond what you deserve, and it's not going to make sense to them. But at the same time, if you walk in rebellion to me, and you do secretly those things which I've commanded you not to do, then that's not going to make sense either. Because people are going to look at the curse that's upon you and how much labor you have to put forward to get something back for what you've put in and that that's not going to even work and that you're going to be diseased and that your health is going to go through the tubes and every element of your national existence is going to choke and suffer and you'll look around and say, but what I'm doing doesn't affect anybody. God says, yes, it does. Because I'm going to make those negative things happen when you walk contrary to what I've told you is the right way to go. 
And so God says, you did it in secret and you thought that it would bear no effect out in the open, but it does bear effect out in the open because God makes it bear effect out in the open. Then he goes on. And he says in verse 10, and they set up for themselves images and groves in every high hill and under every green tree. And these are the high places that we've read about throughout Kings thus far. And and what this was is that they were charging themselves sexually. That is that they they were stimulating through artificial means the sexual element of human relations and they were exploiting it and worshiping under its auspice. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 1. Isaiah says this, and he gives us the light that helps us understand this. He says, the righteous perishes and no one lays it to heart. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. That's a reference to the rapture, by the way. He shall enter into peace, that's the righteous. They shall enter rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But draw near hither, you sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. Against whom do you sport yourselves or flaunt yourselves? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? Inflaming yourselves, that is sexually, with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering. You have offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Upon a lofty and high mountain, the high places, hast thou set thy bed, the place of your sexual activity, Even there wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. Behind the doors also in the posts hast thou set up thy remembrance, for you have discovered or uncovered yourself to another other than me. And you have gone up and you've enlarged your bed and you've made a covenant with them. You loved their bed where you saw it. And so the worship that was taking place within the high places and the idolatry and the idols that they were bowing themselves to, served the purpose of inflaming their sex drives and they were satisfying themselves in that way and God holds it against them. We live in a very sexually charged society. Did you know that? Did you know that 99.9% of the things that come across the TV set are designed to sexually charge our society? And it should be no surprise when we read the news and we look at, wow, look at all the rape. Look at all the pedophilia. Look at Bill Cosby and what he's been doing and the way he is. And look at our nation. And look at the way we're thinking. And look at the perversion that's come into our culture. Why is it like this? I'll tell you why it's like this. Because we've been sowing to that for years. And God says, if you sow to the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. And so the result of the permissiveness and the sexual promiscuity that we've it allowed and even embraced within our society has resulted in us being a very sexually charged nation. And God holds it against them. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away from them and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols, that's God's fifth indictment against them, dead gods that can't help. Whereof the Lord had said unto them, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah 
by all the prophets and by all the seers saying, turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks like unto the neck of their fathers that did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain. And they went after the heathen that were round about them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. God's sixth indictment against the nation is that they would not heed the warning of the prophet is that God didn't want them to go the way of destruction. And so he sent to them messengers urging them. He sent Elijah, and then he sent Elisha, and then he sent the prophets that we read about in the scripture. And he warned the people saying, this is the consequence if you continue to go this way. Don't go that way. That was the message that God uh, gave to them. We're, we're very familiar with uh, the passage in Isaiah chapter 6. That's the passage where Isaiah sees the Lord and his ministry is changed. And it's the passage where God touches his mouth with the coal and, and, and basically commissions him to ministry. And Isaiah hears God say, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Elijah, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. That's what Isaiah says in response to, to the call uh, of God in that thing. And God's response to him is this. It's verse 9 of Isaiah 6. It says that he said, Go and tell these people that you hear indeed, but you understand not. And you see indeed, but you perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. In other words, what God is saying to Isaiah is he's saying, Isaiah, I'm sending you with a message but they're not going to receive the message that you're bringing. I'm giving you that information ahead of time that you're going to go and they're not going to listen to what you have to say. They'll understand the words, but they're not going to understand with their heart. They're going to see the vision that you're trying to cast, but they're not going to be able to perceive it and it won't result in any true transformation within their life. And so Isaiah responds to that call and he says, then said I, Lord, how long? In other words, how long is it going to be until these people wake up? And God said, until the cities are wasted without inhabitant and the houses are without man and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord has removed men far away and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. In other words, God says, they aren't going to listen until they're destroyed. When the day of destruction comes and they're no longer in their land and they're carried off to to, to another place and then they wake up from there and they say, what in the world happened to us? That it will be at that point that that they'll they'll begin to listen and say, wow, we, we took a left when we were supposed to take a right. Something went wrong here in this whole thing. Here's what God is saying. Is that they had come to a point where they could perceive of the consequences of what was coming, and yet they still wouldn't repent. And the sad thing is I think that we're there as a nation today. I believe that if you could take the collective people of the United States of America right now, and you could show them what the United States looks like on the other side of all of what's beginning to fall right now, 
And you could say to them, look, this is what's going to happen. And they could see it and they would agree with it. I still don't think the United States right now would repent of their sin. They wouldn't turn. They wouldn't give up their pornography. They wouldn't give up their idolatry. They wouldn't give up their leisures or their pleasures. They wouldn't give up their false sense of security. They wouldn't give up their covetousness, the greed for money. It wouldn't happen. I don't think it would happen at this day. That's what God said that would happen. He said they're not going to listen until after it's all over. That's what God is is holding against them here. He's saying you didn't listen or heed the warnings even though you knew what was going to happen if you didn't turn. This is an encouraging study, isn't it? Sorry, but it says that they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and they made molten images, even two calves, and they made a grove and they worshipped all the host of heaven and they served Baal. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. That was abortion in the days of antiquity that we talked about a little bit earlier. Is that for the, for the sake of convenience or for some superstitious desire to have some other kind of blessing or just to experience pleasure without responsibility, they would offer their sons and daughters under the auspice that they were doing it as unto the Lord and there was no guilt in, in the whole thing at all whatsoever. Did you know that the sum total of all war casualties and deaths from the inception of our nation until now is about 1.3 million? 1.3 million men and women have died on the battlefield fighting for our country in the past 300 years. In the past 40 years, 57.5 million lives have been taken before they had a chance to make it out of the womb. That's close to 500% more casualties in about 13% of the time. If you were to take each one of those babies that have been murdered in the womb under the auspice of whatever you want to call it in our country in those years, and you were to put their names on a memorial like the Vietnam Wall that exists in Washington, D.C., where you see that wall that's about you know, 10 feet high and that has names listed in you know, about font that's about an inch to an inch and a half high, and it's just name after name after name. If you were to take all the names, 57 and a half million, that wall would be 80 miles long. You would drive down the highway for 80 miles, and you would just see names stacked 10 feet high, 80 miles down the road. And what do you think God thinks of that? When God looks at our country and he sees that this is what we've embraced and that this is what we allow, God says, for these reasons... It says that they used divination and enchantments. That's drug use. And they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And so indictment number 10 is that they sold themselves to do evil. And that is that they gave up their freedom. That's what that means. They sold themselves. And the picture is someone who sells themselves as a slave to another master. God says, if you don't want to serve me, then you're going to serve the thing that you're giving yourself to. And my indictment against you is that you've removed yourself from the place of freedom. Did you know that freedom is a gift from God? Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus makes people free. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, Stand fast in the freedom wherewith you have been set free. God set you free. 
And do not trade that freedom or be again entangled in a yoke of bondage. In Galatians 5.13, it says, you have been called unto liberty, but don't use that liberty as an occasion to serve your flesh. Freedom is a costly thing. And freedom comes from God. And that's true for a people. It's true for us. It's printing up these quotes. I know we're out of time. And don't worry, I'm going to land the plane real soon. But I want to read these to you. This is all from our forefathers. John Quincy Adams. He wrote a letter to his posterity. That's us. And he said, Posterity, you will never know how much it has cost my generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you will make good use of it. Thomas Paine said, What we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. John Adams, second president of the United States at the passing of the Declaration of Independence said this, to be born free is a privilege. To die free is an awesome responsibility. I am well aware of the toil and the blood and the treasure that it will cost to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, I can see the rays of light and glory. I can see that the end is worth more than all the means. And Thomas Jefferson said, My God, how little do my countrymen know what precious blessings they are in possession of and which no other people on earth enjoy. Freedom that we have, not just the freedom that we have in Christ because we're believers here this evening, but the freedoms that we experience as citizens of the United States have been purchased at a great cost. And God held them accountable for the fact that they let that freedom slip out of their hands in a pursuit for pleasure and to worship other gods and to go their own way. So therefore the Lord was angry with Israel and he removed them out of his sight. And there was none left but the tribe of Judah only. Now, you know, I have to go on and read verse 19 now. But, you know, it says that the Lord was angry with Israel and he removed them out of his sight. But as soon as he did it, you read in the prophets, he's going, come back, come back. His heart was never to destroy his people. Even after they were in captivity, God's desire, he sent prophets to them there. He sent Ezekiel into captivity that the hearts of the people would be brought back. It says, Also Judah kept not the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them, and he delivered them into the hand of spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. For he rent or tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat the king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them sin, a great sin. Isn't it interesting that God mentions Jeroboam in, at the end? He was the beginning. It was the, his calves that started the whole thing, and God mentions him at the end. For the, Lord, for the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They departed not from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he had said by all his servants, the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto uh, this day. I was going to just summarize verses 24 to the end anyways, but I don't even have time to do that. So we'll, uh, we'll pick up with those verses next time because they're, uh, they're very interesting verses into the origins of the Samaritan peoples from uh, the New Testament. 
and all of it. And so we close with the death of a nation uh, and its autopsy. Now, the question, and the worship team can come. You sat back down. No, you can come. <laughs> the question is, how do we solve the problems that we see in our world as we overlay our nation and look at it through the lens of God's nation, Israel? Well, we heard in our study tonight, didn't we? The complex problems can be solved one of two ways. You can assess and you can take account and stock and come up with all the best ideas and pool your resources. Or you can take complex problems to a mighty God. And you say, God, nothing is too hard for you. And as you look at the nation that we live in and as we read the things that you held against Israel, we see in our own nation and in our own world and in our own houses sometimes the things that you took them out for. God, would you forgive us? And God, is there any way that you can work in our nation and in our land again? And God says, if my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will come and heal their land. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the word of God. And as we stand, as we sit on this side of history, and as we recognize the problems facing our world and the intensity of what they will cost if we continue on the path that we're on, Lord, we're asking tonight that you would give us revival. Lord, we're asking that you would give us wisdom and understanding and a heart that's broken for the sins of our people. Lord, that you would wake us up to the heights from which we've fallen. And that we would repent, Lord, first from our own sins and then from the sins of the nation. And Lord, that we'd find ourselves on the right side of your judgment. That when it comes, Lord, we might say that you were just, but that we've obtained mercy because of the cross and the blood of Christ. So tonight, Lord, we're asking that as we sit here in this moment, as your spirit moves among our hearts, Lord, we're asking that you would shine your light upon us. You would illuminate the dark corners of our own hearts where we've hidden things, secret things. Lord, that you would forgive us and that you'd give us the grace to set those things upon the altar of Calvary, to bring them to the foot of the cross, and that our lives, Lord, would not just be consecrated to you, but that they'd be pleasing to you. We pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom as Christians in this world and in this country. That you'd show us, Lord, what our place is in being salt and light. And that we would make a difference. Thank you, Lord, for telling us truth, even though it's not pleasant to hear. So much better to know we're in a burning house to get out than to sit in a false peace and to die as the walls cave in. Give us wisdom, Lord. And we pray tonight, Lord, for our loved ones that have yet to put their faith in you. Lord, that you would bring them under conviction and that they'd recognize their need for Jesus and that they would come, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you've made a way, that you've overstepped the gates of hell and you've made a way through your son Jesus that none would have to perish but that all might be saved. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.